Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hi, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, with me in uh, the studio today is Vishal Shaw. Welcome, Vishal. Great, Carmen. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am. I'm. I'm fascinated uh, about your story, Vishal. So I, I want to. Um, I want to kind of set the context here. Uh, right now, you're working with the Northern Rangelands Trust in Kenya, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, but the the connection that we have is through Collingswood, New Jersey. So um, maybe you can give me a little bit of indication of what took you um, to Collingswood and then from Collingswood to Kenya. Uh, I, I was actually born in Kenya, in mm-hmm. Nairobi, uh, which at that time was much more pleasant than it is right now. And I did my schooling in Nairobi. And after high school, I was lucky enough to apply to a, an American university, a University of Pennsylvania, uh, and get admission there. And uh, so I, uh, you know, for the first time all alone, caught a flight to America and landed in Philadelphia and, uh, and started my undergrad there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I finished that, uh, worked in Chicago for some time as a business consultant, uh, went back to get my MBA, and, uh, and then I found a job with Campbell Soup Company which brought me to Collingswood, where I was settled for about four years, uh, had, had kids there. And, uh, and then my wife and I, who luckily is also from Kenya, so we both mm-hmm. made a decision to move back to Kenya. So, yeah, that's uh, how uh, we, we got back to Kenya. Well, we have, we have a connection as well. I, um, so I went to got my master's in, in literature at Rutgers, and uh, I was given a Campbell Fellowship, which I thought might have been Joseph Campbell, but it was actually a Chunky Soup scholarship um, from oh. Campbell Soup. So cool. <laughs> same, same type of uh, – sometimes you, you never know where, where your paths are going to cross. Um, so so tell, me, um, tell me a little bit about the, um, the Kenyan crisis that has, uh, that has kind of um, – added to the instability uh, in Kenya from from how it was when you grew up? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, all around the world, uh, population is rising. And, uh, you know, Kenya, since its independence, I think when Kenya got independence from the British colonial rule in 1963, the population of Kenya was estimated at about 7 million. And uh, now in 2020, we're kind of pushing north of 50 million. So, you know, just all around more human beings in the country. And uh, that that adds a lot of pressure to ecosystems, uh, to just the general kind of comfort factor. Um, You know, I I still live in the same suburb I grew up in. And when Mm -hmm. I grew up, it was kind of, it was like Collingswood. It was kind of small bungalows, but now mm-hmm. it's full of high-rise apartments, uh, just much more traffic, much more people, yeah. much more garbage, etc. So, so how did how did you <clears throat> how did you find your um, your homecoming? Because you know you you move out of uh, of Kenya when you're seventeen or eighteen years old, and you have this kind of intensive University of Pennsylvania experience. Did you do your undergraduate there or your uh, graduate work there too yeah, as well? Yeah, both undergrad okay. and grad, yeah. Okay. And so you, you, you're you kind of immersed in that culture um, and you said you became a, a management consultant. Um, so you were doing a lot of traveling, working with lots of different corporations? Yeah, yes. As well? Yes. Okay. That, that man, the management consulting was before I went back to get my MBA. Mm-hmm. After my MBA, I was kind of, uh, what's called a brand manager. So it's, yep. it's a very typical marketing role within consumer goods companies. Mm-hmm. And so you, <clears throat> what what got you interested in going back to Kenya? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a confluence of many uh, different factors. The, the first was kind of like this um, realization we had you know we we had two kids um and we were kind of fortunate enough to that's when we met 
Anthony, mm-hmm. um, who's the producer of this this podcast. Um, but we had, you know, we so we had two toddlers, and um, we we kind of we felt that um, honestly, from a kind of we wanted them to be closer to family, and family were all in Kenya. So yeah. so that was um, a, a big draw. The other uh, the other big factor was uh, I had this itch, an entrepreneurial itch. So mm-hmm. I worked with big companies um, in my career up till that point, and I really wanted to, you know, try something. Uh, I kept on kind of. I was in my thirties uh, then, and I, I kept on saying, "Oh, you know, if I don't do something now, like it'll be too late." And I, I don't want to be in my sixties and regret not trying something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and ironically, I felt like going back to Kenya uh, would be uh, would be the kind of the most exciting thing, even from an entrepreneurial standpoint, because it was sure. the growing you know growing economy and uh, huge consumer class coming online, uh, and I could I felt I could really leverage all the experience that I got in the U.S. to, yeah. to do something in 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 Africa. But also at this inflection point, right, for Kenya, when it's it's got to find a way of of balancing the issues that it has with all of the opportunities, right? I mean, you this is a a stunning natural landscape that's yes. threatened. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Kenya for most of the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, it was kind of in slumber. Uh, the economy was not growing. The the poverty was incre- increasing, and then um, in the mid two thousands, it really started taking off. Uh, and uh, and you know, there was a rapid expansion; more people were coming into the middle class. So it was an exciting time in Kenya at that time. So, tell me a little bit about um, NRT and how you got in contact with them. Um, so. With NRT, it was actually quite, uh, it was quite by, um, I, I wouldn't say luck, but uh, it was quite serendipitous. Uh, you know, when you go to a school like uh, Wharton, where, where I went for my MBA, one, mm-hmm. of the, one of the things they always tell you is, oh, you know, when you go to a school like Wharton or whatever, you, you meet people and the alumni base is very yep. powerful. And Broad. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of never really you know, paid attention to that. I thought it was, uh, you know, marketing fluff. <laughs> but mm-hmm. what actually happened is uh, when I was in Kenya, I got randomly emailed by an alumni of Wharton who found my email address uh, on, on the alumni website. And all she wanted to do at that time was, you know, meet up for coffee, learn about Kenya. She had some mm-hmm. project, project going on in Kenya. And, uh, and so... I, you know, we we actually decided to meet up, but it never happened because some other crisis came up. But we kept in touch with each other, and then um, um, after a few months, she emailed saying, "Oh, there's this opportunity at NRT. Would you be interested?" And <laughs> that's when I decided to explore it, and and that's how it all started. I have a um, I have a question, and um, and I'm gonna get back to it a, a little bit down the road, but you've reminded me of something, which is that the, the ability to develop micro economies where the wealth stays within the community is so important. And, you know, as you said, you've had this experience at Wharton and then in management consulting and then at a a larger, you know, kind of food services company, food manufacturing company. That idea of being a part of, of of a system that helps to to build wealth in the community was that something that drove you um it, you know the initial challenge uh when i joined nrt was it, it was at a very different place what we were trying to do uh, mm-hmm. let me let me let me give you a background uh, on the landscape at this point and mm-hmm. you, you know what it entails. So Northern Rangelands Trust, NRT, is mm-hmm. an umbrella organization for this movement. And it's a movement of 
community conservancies. Okay. Um, so so two-thirds of the landmass of Kenya is, um, is actually, it's not owned by private individuals, it's owned by communities that reside on it. And mm-hmm. it's actually a very messy affair in terms of land ownership. And, and so this is a movement that started two decades ago where communities would organize themselves and they would kind of, you know, create like a, a zone or a boundary and, and they would form a conservancy. So it gave structure to something that was, you know, quite disorganized before. Yeah. And, and then, you know, once there was a community conservancy, there'd be like a board and there'd be a manager and there'd be a chairperson. Yeah. Uh, so in northern Kenya, which was kind of, which was very lawless in the 90s and 2000s, the community mm. conservancy movement started bringing a lot of order. Um, and, you know, you also have to kind of uh, juxtapose the neighborhood, right? So on the east is Somalia. Uh, on In the north is Ethiopia and South Sudan. On the west is Uganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's quite a kind of volatile neighborhood. Um, the, the, the tribes, if you may, or the communities that live uh, in northern Kenya in this landscape, they all still, uh, they still kind of practice a form of livelihood called pastoralism. So mm-hmm. pastoralism involves, uh, you know, the, the, the principal source of your livelihood is your livestock. So cows, goats, sheep, camels, and, uh, and they're the magic animals because uh, they convert solar energy uh, that kind of is formed through the grass into something useful for human beings through the blood, milk, meat, etc. So they, they, their sustenance is their livestock and, and they move around the landscape in search of pastures and rains. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very tough environment. Uh, the rainfall is less than 500 millimeters a year um, and, and they're all very, very tough people. Uh, the landscape is also uh, kind of imbibed with really amazing wildlife. Uh, free free roaming herd of about seven to eight thousand elephant. Um, it used to have a lot of rhino, and we're now trying to bring back rhino into the landscape. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, just a diverse amount of species and bird life in that landscape. So it's it's a landscape that is really worth conserving and saving for the future. So so that's the the landscape we're trying to to work in and. My job uh, is to right now I'm, I'm kind of leading up a business accelerator. So, so we are trying to bring business into this landscape. Um, it sounds easy, but it's actually very hard because there's not that much natural resource to draw upon. Uh, as I said, that there's not a lot of rainfall, so you can't even practice a lot of agriculture. Um, so, so we're kind of we. I'm trying to work with what I have and trying to kind grow the, the resource base. The other thing is because of the f- livelihood form and because Northern Kenya traditionally has been kind of ignored, uh, you know, we did a survey and uh, 70% of young adults have not finished high school. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're working with people who haven't gone through the formal education system. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. Uh, and uh, so back to your question that you asked earlier, you know, what yeah. drew, drew me to it initially was uh, the challenge of kind of working on a business. We had a business which we call Livestock to Market, uh, mm-hmm. where we would uh, go into the interiors and we'd purchase livestock to take to commercial markets. Uh, okay. Obviously, it was uh, it's a very, very tough challenge. Uh, <laughs> and so it was to try and kind of go in and fix that, that business. But since then, the work has evolved a lot. Well, give, paint a picture about how how you would do that. So, so you're taking you're taking the lov- livestock from an area that is in northeastern Kenya, and you're bringing it to a to a market town. Yeah, uh, it's it's quite a complicated process. But what we do is we'll we'll go so we'll go into the into the interior of the conservancies. Um, mm-hmm. It involves first kind of sending out an advance party to do what we call sensitization. So they'd go around to all the different villages, which we, you know, which are called manyatas. 
and they'd say, okay, on this date, we'll be coming to buy cattle. So, you know, mm-hmm. creating the local awareness that there that there's going to be what we call a purchase day. And then on the purchase day, a team would go out with a weighing scale and everybody would gather around. It's kind of, you know, there, there's really no infrastructure. Uh, we'd be lucky if there's mm-hmm. even a crush there. And everybody wow. would line up. And, um, you know, one of the things, the innovations we brought to the landscape was the weighing scale itself. Because before, you know, and even now, I mean, a lot of transactions just happen by market kind of haggling and negotiation. Wow. And then we'd, uh, yeah, we'd weigh the cow and uh, we'd weigh the cattle and whoever wants to sell, a willing buyer, willing seller uh, would agree. And, and then we'd have this huge logistical challenge to track, track the cattle or transport them back to our home base, which is well, at, at a conservancy called Leva, which is also where we're okay. uh, based. And, and then we'd have like a 30-day quarantine and then we'd, we'd look for grazing space, contracted grazing space and, and distribute the cattle out and, and you know, until they're kind of fattened and ready for market. Um, and part of the job was also kind of creating the links to market with commercial suppliers um, in, in Nairobi. So so it was a very complicated cycle. Now, where, where, is, Le- where is Leva? Leva is right north of Mount Kenya, uh, uh, north of the equator. Uh, and I'd say it's the southernmost, southernmost point of northern Kenya. Uh, and and Lewa is uh, is also a conservancy, though it's a private conservancy. So uh, it's it's not owned by any community, but it's owned by a private trust. Wow! So I'm I'm trying to get a a feel for this. Um, so you've got the Chalbi Desert, and you've got eastern and northeastern Kenya, and you're bringing them. How many how many miles are you bringing the cattle? Oh, uh, more <laughs> than five hundred. So I, I'll give you an example okay. of what happened last week. Two weeks ago, uh, and it culminated yesterday. Actually, our team went to um, uh, a community. They're probably the smallest community in in Kenya. Um, they're called the Gabra, uh, uh, and they are, uh, you know, they're kind of at the border with Ethiopia. And mm-hmm. we we went there to buy cattle two weeks ago, and and you know the local chief helped us and. We, we managed to buy 110 head of cattle and then we had this huge, you know, we had to kind of look for transporters to load the cattle and bring them 500 mm-hmm. mile uh, kilometers south to Lewa. And then this is such a remote area that they don't have any banking services. Um, so then, uh, you know, I like last week I had this kind of, have you, I don't know if you watched the movie Clear and Present Danger, but I, yes. had, I had to go to the bank with armed guards draw mm-hmm. like a whole suitcase of cash, then stuff envelopes with names of all the sellers written on them. And then we had a small plane, um, you know, with one of my staff, like take a three hour plane ride to this little, to this location, you know, kind of land in, the, in an airstrip in the middle of nowhere, had a, had to arrange kind of armed, um, you know, guards to intercept them there. And then they distributed out these envelopes to all the sellers and flew well, back. Well, I mean, luckily, Wharton teaches you that in like a 300-level <laughs> class, right? I mean, it's just it's part of what they do. So, so <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's actually sad, right? It shouldn't be. We're now in 2020. These things shouldn't be. But this is one of the final kind of frontiers. Um, otherwise, yeah, but, Vishal, but, but that's the thing, though. So so that's the, that's the thing that I want to get to is that you're – your love of your of your country and of your and, and of the the many cultures that are there you know you you go out and you look for resources and knowledge and you bring it back and you and you combine it so in a way it's not just that you're helping them get their cattle to market you're also to a certain extent helping to preserve their way of life their culture but you're 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 helping them enter kind of the the, the modern economy in a way that's going to protect them Yes, right, because yes, if yes. not, somebody's going to come in and start to exploit them. Yeah, I mean, so that's the 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 the, the big thrust of the direction I'm, you know, pushing the company and you know what I'm doing towards. So one of the things that we started uh, and we're growing rapidly and and we're finding a lot of support amongst donors, etc., uh, is a mm-hmm. uh, a program in Swahili we call Biashara Mashinani. Biashara means business and Mashinani means at the grassroots, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's really business at the grassroots. So what we're trying to 
we're, what we're trying to do is uh, kind of bring in the skills that will allow people who don't really interact with the modern economy to start learning how to do so. Um, and that involves microfinance. So we give out you know, oh, yeah. small loans uh, up to $250. Uh, and the the other thing is a kind of it's a skills development program, so vocational skills, uh, and 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 we've designed it in such a way that you know anybody like even uh, our, our our warriors that the name for them is Morans, um, you know so the Morans who haven't gone to school, uh, if we can just teach them skills that can allow them to earn an income that's not reliant just on livestock, uh, mm. we're kind of we're diversifying their their livelihood and we're kind of we're getting them ready for the modern economy um so it, it's a it's a tough challenge and uh you know if if we if we don't succeed i mean we have to succeed we're, we're looking at a, a segment of society that's been left behind but will continue to to be left behind and um we uh, you know uh these are people who are kind of like at the poverty line. So we sure. did a survey and, you know, they they are kind of, their their formal income at least averages around like less than, you know, $2 a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very, very tough. I mean, they they do, they survive on the landscape, they survive on the, using the livestock, and they, they have mm-hmm. very rich culture, et cetera. But, but we, you know, we need to bring them in the modern economy. Well, and and I think that the, you know, when you look at the NRT trading part of NRT that you're responsible for, yes, you know, you know, in a way, what you're what you're building is this this hybrid system for these, you know, not just for the micro lending, which I think is brilliant, and we we need to put up a URL if there's ways that people can donate to your micro lending fund, but beyond that, this idea of micro economies that allow these people to develop and take full advantage of what is unique about them because it it feels to me that you know whether it's the beadwork or whether it's the cattle or or any other model you come up with that you know first and foremost you know in this in kind of like the homogenization and the globalization of the world you you also want to protect the heritage yes you know you want these people to have comfortable and and safe and valuable lives but at the same time, so often, you know, this the gentrification or the globalization winds up wiping that out. So, how do you balance that? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I, I think um, that, that's that's a really good question. Uh, we and, and and I say that by the way, knowing that your suburb that you grew up in, which was one way, is now a completely different way because of urbanization and you know massive development, probably to a certain extent, kind of um, uh, less controlled than you would have liked. Yeah. So so the the growth in the landscape. One thing that we are always challenged on uh, by our board. Uh, and, uh, uh, and 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 our donors is how can we uh, have growth that is in tandem with and uh, sustainable from a, an environmental point of view. So we we want to we want to try and have incomes rise, uh, but at the same time, like you know, not do it in such a way where we're 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 placing additional burden on the environment and we're destroying the environment. Um, and and it, it's not easy because uh, you know by the very kind of like the the modern economic kind of I guess the Keynesian Keynesian paradigm of economic growth um, you, you know does not kind of take environment into into account. But uh, what what we are trying to do is uh, number one like we are as you said we are trying to work with the what the people want to do and what the people's livelihoods are. So we're, we, mm-hmm. we've, we've kind of resisted bringing up uh, foreign concepts in. Uh, yeah. And, and, and also the, the thing about it is foreign concepts actually have been brought in before and have failed. Um, mm-hmm. So it's something that's also not embraced by, by communities on the ground. Yeah. Um, so when we go for, for example, skills development, we would, 
you know, we, we don't bring our ideas. Like we sit under the tree and we ask communities, what do you want to do? What do you yes. want to learn? Where do you see the uh, opportunities? Um, the, the, so, so, so the, we resist kind of like, we resist putting up factories or, you know, ideas like yes. that. Uh, it's more kind of like a, a, a ground up approach to, to economic growth. Um, and and it doesn't ha- it doesn't always have like the the stellar results that people mm-hmm. expect, uh, you know. Like the beadworks, like uh, I, I had a group of um, MBA students consult with me last year, um, and you know when uh, I mean they kept on getting astounded because like they would say, "Oh, we should do this," and I, I would say, "Well, how does that help the women?" Um, so yes. so it was like it was always about well, what's better from the the my kind of stakeholders who are the women of the villages what's better from their point of view and if it doesn't really help them then it's something i don't want to do even though yeah. whatever it is we'll have great economic results or great prof you know great results in terms of profits but uh it, it doesn't kind of uh put forward my agenda which is helping the women uplift themselves uh and and that's been a huge kind of shift. Um, um, I mean, I think that's the kind of shift that's needed around the world because, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, you, you know, I am a capitalist. I grew, I, I, obviously, I, I studied at Wharton, et cetera, but sometimes uh, maybe looking at it from a different angle, not just from a, you know, profit perspective can, can lend different lenses to a, a problem. So, so I want I want to talk to you about that because the you you've hit. I, I don't do this a lot in this podcast, but you've actually kind of pushed me into the business side of what I do. Um, the the stuff that you're talking about, the ability to um, to set up a model that is about collaborative economics, that is not about kind of pure unbridled maximizing of profit. That side of an economy is starting to emerge in all parts of the world. I have a friend who um, had a business in on, on the coast of Montenegro and her um, significant other had three stores and she came from New York. <clears throat> she was saying, well, you know, if you upgrade the quality of the materials, you know, the things that we sell in the store, we can make more money. We can open up a fourth store. And he said, look, you know, I get up in the morning and I go to the go downstairs from the apartments and we open up the first store and I have my coffee in the square. And then I go to the second store for lunch and I go to the third store that's on the beach. If I had a fourth store, how am I going to fit that in? And, (laughs) you know, it clicked in her head. She's like, oh, crap. You're right. That's not what this is about. And and I'm finding in so many different parts of my world, I sit on a couple of nonprofit boards, some that help um, young adults who've been adjudicated, you know, develop skills um, as green contractors to build green homes. Um, others to protect parkland. And what you've done is you've combined these things and said, what we're trying to build here is sustainable, profitable growth for these people in their culture. Yes. That's a different model. And as a communications consultant, what I see in what you're doing is a different type of story. The sitting under the tree is such an African concept and the 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 way that the conservation systems are set up through local tribes and communities is, is antithetical to so many western kind of concepts of how property and wealth is stored in an individual yeah. how do you explain what you're doing because you're living in a in a bifurcated world <laughs> you, you've got the yeah, one hand I mean, the honest answer is we're not doing a good job explaining it and maybe Carmen you could come help us <laughs> I'm, I, I, honestly yeah, honestly we yeah. can take this offline but that's the first thing that I'm thinking about is yeah, is yeah. how I can help you no I, I uh, you're right we're not communicating this properly um, we uh, I struggle because um, y- y- you know I mean part of the part of my metrics are also kind of growth and profitability Um but what people honestly really get excited about uh, is the women and the you know the momentum yes. we're having in uplifting their livelihoods. Um, so so uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, uh, communicating that whole concept in a way that um, can get kind of stakeholders excited is uh, is a weakness we have that that we need to work on. Well, so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch just a little bit of gears here because I have a friend that that um, actually lived in Uyoma near uh, I think it's Kisumu. Okay. Uh, off of Lake Victoria, yeah. and this was in the '90s. Yeah. And it was when um, AIDS was sweeping through that part of Kenya, yep. and he eventually became a um, in, in the USS. Uh, Mercy and Hope's Hall of Fame as a relief worker, but his time in Kenya taught him the power of um, community strength. Yes, and the idea that um, the only way you can survive in these types of environments is through the kind of the innate understanding that the collective is going to protect you. Yes, and so. You know, I grew, you know, I've known him since we were 12. Um, I understood him and that process that he went through when he came back and said, well, this is a catalyst to change the way I look at the world. (laughs) These women who in a lot of cases are looking for ways to, to be more autonomous, to have more control over their lives. Right yep. to to not be controlled by kind of maybe maybe a stronger patriarchy, etc. How do you gain their trust? Uh, it's a long process that requires a lot of patience, uh, and it spans multiple years. We, uh, you know, we, I, I think, and, and and that's the reason why, um, you know, there. There's a refrain around the world that oh, aid's not working, and but I think aid, mm-hmm. aid, uh, in the traditional sense, is very short term and short sighted. Um, yes. uh, you know, uh, the thing that's different about we, NRT we... and NRT trading, and what we're doing is we're not a three-year program or we're not a five-year mm-hmm. program, and the whole of you know, kind of everywhere. You know, there's like a three-year program to do this or that, and what we're trying to say is, no, we're going to be much longer than that. We're we're there with the communities, and we're we're, we're from the communities, um, and so uh, it takes a long time uh, to gain the trust and to actually crack the system. Well, and so what I say, you know, to this is going to be the best straight-up podcast because. Them stopping interviewing you and just talking to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but one of the things that uh, that I always talk about is credibility over time builds trust. Yes. So what essentially you're doing is creating this drumbeat of you see them one time and they don't trust you or like you, and you see them again and maybe you're helping with something small, and and over time you're building this relationship. But it's always in the service of their goals because as soon as somebody believes that you're exploiting them. Yeah. All of that trust goes away. Yeah. And they've probably been exploited so many times yeah. over you know, years or decades. Yeah, yeah. More than exploited, I think um, communities have been disappointed so many times. Because, mm. okay. uh, you know, so many people show up promising so many things. Uh, mm-hmm. And then and then obviously kind of, uh, you know, things may or may not materialize, but uh, uh, are things sustainable over the long term? And, you know, do they stick? So um, trying trying to kind of take a really long view uh, mm-hmm. and and work really patiently uh, that 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 will eventually kind of bring the change that's needed in the in the landscape. Uh, well, and and a lot of times they people will dump cash into something for the short term gain, but when it when the cash bleeds out, what you're left with is a false infrastructure, correct, or a false yeah. economy. Yeah. Absolutely correct. And, and that whipsawing actually destabilizes not just the economics, but also the politics and the society. So do you, do you find yourself um, turning things down or turning help down? Uh, and, and as you said, um, maybe in a less – maybe it's a, a, a less glitzy or a less uh, dramatic way, just telling people that um, 
incremental steps that are stronger in terms of a foundation are what we have to do? Yeah, um, it's a very delicate balance. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I don't want to turn donors away and everything, but I, 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 I as a, certainly as a leader now, kind of I'm trying to bring up the conversation that, um, you, you know, we, we need to take a much longer term view at this. Um, you, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of like, I'm trying to resist more and I'm uh, trying to kind of impress more is uh, there's mm. this tendency uh, to to kind of like, oh, there's this problem, let's bring in a consultant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there'll be some consultant from Nairobi or America or wherever yep. will come and, you know, come down for two weeks and interview a few people and write a report. And I'm trying to like say, no, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, if the consultant is willing to stay here for three years and actually do the work, then I'm willing to mm-hmm. entertain that consultant. But I, sure. don't, I, you know, I don't want like somebody just coming and writing a report and leaving because then that report creates a lot of expectation on the ground uh, that are then hard to deliver. Um, well, yeah, and and I think beyond that, you you have to be invested in this process because it it is a series of almost controlled failures you know each time you fail you learn not to do that and you learn to do this and and i i I think that yeah yeah. you know because otherwise it's so much easier for people to come in for the short-term gain yeah and you know i mean oh this could be a like a five-hour conversation (laughs) i know i know i know but that's fine yeah yeah no you know i i think i I think donors also have a lot of pressure to to also you know have the photo sure. and show the results. And so there's you know what? That's bullshit though. But I got to tell you that the, the more I listen to that, um, Michelle, is, is that, 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 that when I hear that from a, from a nonprofit, even from, even if it's a powerful NGO, I, I'm, I, these days I'm calling bullshit on it because, um, the reality is <laughs> these, these companies ought to, uh, these organizations ought to be smart enough to understand that what you're dealing with here is, is an ecosystem. And there yeah. are subtleties and interconnectivities that you're not going to get in three to five years. No. And you're going to make mistakes. You know, yeah. it's like operating on the body. You know, yeah. if you do something wrong, you're going to affect the whole system. Yeah. And, I, and I, I push back on those people whenever I hear them because what they're really trying to do is make themselves look good in the short term. There's yeah. individuals in a lot of cases. So yeah. is this well, a sea The other change? thing is, is it's a generational thing. You know, yes. ch- changing culture or changing habits – takes a whole generation um so uh you for example i I, i'll talk about livestock productivity right it's like there are better techniques of doing things with livestock that improve productivity uh will communities embrace it with one demo no will they embrace it with five demos no they're probably going to take you know two three four five years of demos and persistent, patient, kind of uh, showcasing, uh, holding their hands before they start embracing such change. So mm-hmm. these things uh, take take much longer. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, not everybody in a community uh, has the same kind of wavelength. Uh, so, so when you go, you know, there, there will be some, just like kind of, you know, when when you talk about early adopters for technology, etc., same mm-hmm. thing here. It's kind of like they'll be the early adopters, people whose brain gets switched on. They want to do it, but not everybody will do it. So you'd have to then kind of take those early adopters, whom whom we call beacons of hope, <laughs> and they're mm-hmm. the ones who'll embrace the change a little bit, and then everybody's kind of watching them. Uh, you know, maybe the next season or the next year, a few more people get converted. So it it's mm-hmm. definitely a, a process. It's it's not something that. But you're, but but you're also doing. You're you're trying to put into place these replicable disciplines, right? So it's not just a matter of having them do the thing. You also have to watch how they do the thing. Yes. You know all the problems that they solve. Yes. And document those problems yes. so that then you can apply it to probably a diff- slightly different situation with the next group of people. Yes, you have to iterate, right. and you, you have to learn, and you have yeah. to iterate the next time around, uh, and 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 change and course correct. But, but because people are not predictable, and you know the the landscape is not always predictable. 
But but in a lot of ways, it seems to me that the secret here is is as you said, sitting under the tree. You know, they've had generations and generations of practice in doing the things that they're doing. Yes. Right. So the grooves are deep and the knowledge is deep. They know where the, you know, the water sources are and they they understand the best pathway and the likelihood of, you know, weather here versus there. But you're you're trying to combine that with something that may give them maybe like a five percent or a ten percent increase in their returns, right? Which could be significant for them, could be an uh, you know, a lifeline or a <laughs> Right. Yes. I mean, so, so that type of description and that type of process, do you find that the next generation of people, the people that are coming up, um, millennials are more open and more interested in this? Is there a generational piece? Because, you know, at your age, you're kind of bridging the gap between old traditional ways and, and new ways. Is there any of that going on? Because yeah. Africa seems to be exploding in terms of opportunity, but it, it could be, um, it could be damaging if it's not done right. Yeah, no, I, you know, my hope is that um, the younger generation with the exposure they have to technology, I mean, one great mm -hmm. thing about even Northern Kenya is there's cell phone signal now to the far mm -hmm. reaches of uh, Northern Kenya. And, and you know, with at least kind of 3G signal, uh, people are kind of getting more information, they're getting more exposure to the rest of the world than there has ever been before. The other thing is, you know, I mean, nobody really wants a life of discomfort. So I, I'm sure the younger generations are kind of looking, you know, looking at the rest of the country and longing for the same comforts that everybody else has. So, so there, there certainly, I think, will be a, a you know, generational shift towards kind of more, you know, modern practices. The, the obviously the nuance there is kind of like. More, more modern, but environmentally and socioeconomically kind of sustainable, you know, uh, changes. Well, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I was going to say to you is as I, yeah. as I look at what you're doing, you know, so much of what you're doing is a sustainability model. Yes. And that's so why I go back to this idea of sustainable, profitable growth for the individual, for the community, for the country, but it's not just sustainable in terms of, um, of green, it's sustainable in terms of the value that they generate for themselves over the long haul. Yes, and if if that person as an individual isn't growing and isn't learning skills to ma to maintain and protect their culture, but also to um, take advantage of and to build that that additional layer of security, then you're not successful. And if it doesn't feed into the protecting of the culture, then you're not successful. So how do you? How do you play that three-layered chess, <laughs> right? Where you're trying to help the individual, you're trying to help the the community, and then you're you're trying to to play in this kind of larger global evolution. Yeah, I mean, we so we're you know number one, like we're going very very slowly uh, mm -hmm. in the scheme of things and learning as we're going, and and uh, we 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 are trying to strengthen the existing institutions at all levels. So we are trying to strengthen individuals and families um, and give them skills to, to be able mm -hmm. to diversify their livelihood. But then we're also strengthening, you know, the communities and the conservancies at a level above mm -hmm. and ensure that they also become robust institutions that can kind of be, 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 be the governing structure for the communities. Um, and then we're trying to layer in, uh, and that's the hardest bit, is uh, kind of sustainability structures in terms of income and environment uh, I into the whole landscape. And um, and it's hard because, you know, this is an area that doesn't have a lot of income generating ability. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things we're trying to develop is tourism, ecotourism. Uh, and mm -hmm. community-owned ecotourism. So uh, have community assets, be it, you know, lodges or, you know, we mm -hmm. call them bandas here, but kind of the chalets that are owned by the community yeah. and run by the community and bring income into the community. And it gives, um, it gives uh, uh, an incentive for the community to, you know, directly kind of protect their natural resources. Um, and And also kind of, 
slowly building structures where everybody in the community can benefit from from these income generating activities. So I want, um, I'm going to give you a piece of information, and I and I I found it fascinating in 1999 or 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interview with a uh, a guy just to talk um, who he used to work for the CIA. Yep. And his fascination with conservation in Africa had to do with the ability of tribes and communities and nations to connect protected lands and habitats so that the natural wildlife could migrate the way that it did traditionally hundreds and thousands of years ago. Yeah. And and the contention was that if you do that and you build that type of protected economy that you in some ways can skip the heavy industry and manufacturing that so often kind of destroys the the community and sets up that kind of um, um, less ecological friendly economy. Do you see that as as possible? Yeah, I mean, that's what NRT is. Uh, NRT mm-hmm. is, is essentially um, a tapestry or a quilt of community conservancies that allows an elephant from Mount Kenya to, you know, climb down the slopes and walk all the way up to the, you know, ideally the goal would be, you know, CB Loi National Park uh, at the north of Kenya near Lake Turkana. And, and Michelle, that's your story. Huh? And, <laughs> that's your story. And uh, yeah, and, and the, uh, you know, they've, they've put these collars on, on uh, various herds of elephants and the elephants uh, have they actually know where the community conservancies are and they they have a sense of where it's safe to go and where it's not safe mm-hmm. to go and and so they usually straddle the the boundaries of the community conservancies uh and, and so so you, you know the first part of the answer is yes that's what we're trying to do the second part is it's kind of like can we you know have this as the economic driver and avoid more environmentally damaging uh, you know, sources of economic growth. Uh, you, you know, honestly, that's a tough one because um, the rate at which the population is growing and the, the rate at which we need to lift people out of poverty, uh, we need to balance even tourism uh, against that because we we also don't want to create like a, a tourism nightmare. With no, you don't yeah, want Disney yeah. Disneyfy this whole thing. I yeah. mean, you, you, again, that that balance. So, so look, here here's the thing. You are involved in a um, in a joint venture with herds of elephants. Yes, and and these elephants have an understanding of the value that you have, and you have an understanding of their value, and you're working together. And the elephants understand where they can go and where you can help protect them. And by the same token, you're you're looking at protecting and maintaining this entire ecosystem. Yes. This is a continuation of your father's work, who was well known in the philanthropic world. So tell me about his work and and why you're involved in this and how influential he was on your on your life. Because it seems to me that you've got this is part of who you are. It appears yeah. to me that like you kind of grew up in this in this world where solving these problems and looking at things from a through a philanthropic lens is is how you were raised. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, um, <laughs> since childhood, uh, our family ethos has been, uh, you know, more of a service oriented ethos. Uh, <laughs> you know, my dad was he was a successful businessman. Um, mm-hmm. But he 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 never really cared about the business. Uh, <laughs> it, it was not something he'd wear up his sleeves. Um, he, yeah, you you know maybe in in his mind he knew oh, the business did well or did not do well, but it yeah. was not something that he he ever kind of you know trumpeted um, about. But he was always extremely, you know, in contrast, he was extremely proud about. Uh, all the kind of social service he always was able to do, um, and that—that's what really I think uh, uh, gave him a lot of joy and passion 
Um, he he wasn't he wasn't involved in northern Kenya. I, you know, when I grew up, when I was um, a little boy in the nineties and even up to two thousand, northern Kenya was kind of it was out of bounds. It was um, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's dangerous. It, it was very dangerous. There were no there was no road network. So in our minds, northern Kenya was really another country. Uh, it's only recently mm-hmm. that northern Kenya has opened up, um, and and maybe because it was so dangerous that it's remained intact uh, and so spectacularly beautiful. Uh, so as it opens up more and more, I think, you know, it's, we, we have to kind of make sure that natural beauty stays. Uh, but yeah, like my, 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 you know, my father would always get excited about planting trees or, um, and uh, he was always, uh, yeah, that's what drove him. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it was always exciting for us as a family to get involved in his projects, uh, and uh, and yeah, he he kind of left that a, li- a little of that with me. I don't know if I'll ever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> reach up to his standards, but uh, uh, I'm well. But I don't that. think we ever do, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, and that's part of part of the African culture, right? Is is to um, you know, you're you're you when you look across community-based cultures and, you know, Indian cultures do this, Italian cultures do, it, it's so hard to meet the expectations of your, of your, your parents sometime um, because they, they, the bar is high. And I think that what I find fascinating is that you've taken on a challenge that is ridiculously hard. And, and I think that sometimes what, what, what parents strong parents and accomplished parents give you is the the ability to invest in tenacity and grit yep. to keep pushing and that the value here is is not simply measured in in dollars and cents that's the part that a Wharton grad probably um, has the hardest time explaining to 75% of the other Wharton grad <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and I say this, you know, I, I say this because a friend of mine is a Wharton grad and he just um, transitioned to 52 and said, I'm done. I'm not doing the, I'm going to now shift my efforts to nonprofits to use this knowledge to give back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I don't know if, um, I don't know even if uh, Anthony told, but I just lost my dad this year. Um, oh, I'm sorry. In, in January. Yeah. And um Obviously, the loss of uh, a parent, and, and my mom had passed away quite uh, some time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it makes you really uh, do a lot of soul searching and reflection. Uh, you know, think about your life uh, and juxtapose his life, and um, and you know, we we all we all fall into this trap, um, and I do too. Um, you call it the rat race or whatever you call it. It's kind of like, how do you measure your self-worth and are you successful? And, you know, what should you be aiming for in life? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes even I kind of feel weak and I'm like, oh, should I just, you know, should I get a job with Coca-Cola or whatever? Uh, and, you know, <laughs> go back to the, the other side, uh, you know, fully for, for profit. Uh, but... Um, you know, and, and, and we all have uh, um, pressures on our life, you know, be it paying the school fees for the kids or, you know, saving mm-hmm. up for their college, you're worrying about your own retirement, etc. Um, but, uh, you know, as I reflect on my dad's life, it's kind of like he was a really content person um, and mm-hmm. he just figured out this formula where he, you know, he, he didn't really, he didn't need to to showcase much to feel um, successful and he yeah. was just very very comfortable in his own skin and he would be able to approach very very successful businessmen etc uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know and uh, um, ask them for donations for his causes etc um, but uh, you know obviously he had that credibility and um, and I think it, it, it probably came from that contentment that he had that, you know, I mean, his role within this uh, this world and his role within the society and what's kind of expected of him. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, he 
yeah, he, he left a lot behind. He would wear like a uh, a ten dollar watch. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Get a get a better wristwatch. No, uh, why do I need a better <laughs> wristwatch? <laughs> yeah. Well, because I think that that's you know when you're comfortable in your own skin, you put aside a lot of the the ego driven things that other people become obsessed with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I and I think you can tell. You know, my father, um, my father was a welder. And um, he was a blue collar guy, always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and he he retired as um, a nuclear welder. And he was he was the guy who was in charge of building the um, nuclear power plants. Wow. So he went as far as he could go in that. And when he passed away several years ago and we had the, the viewing, um, all of these people from from work showed up and they said he was the nicest man. He would go out of his way to develop people and to protect them and it was a whole other side of my father that mm. I hadn't seen, and I and it and it struck me, and I think similar to you is that you know these guys can can push you, they can put a lot of pressure and say you know do something valuable, you know be something, and believe me, as an English major with my dad doing that, he was questioning all the time like what are you going to do with this, <laughs> but but I think that what he what he showed me was that. When you're doing something in the service of your family, you know, as he said, I, I liked being a welder when I was making $8 an hour. I loved being a welder when I was making $35 an hour. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, once he got that, once he, he protected his family, once he got that security that we were going to be okay, he really turned his attention to helping other people. Yeah. And that's the part, what's the purpose of the podcast, Michelle, is, is to say the same thing is – how do we do this in a way that I can be your ally or that you can be the ally of these, of these women? Because it, it's not that we want to subvert what they're doing. We want to enable it, but we also don't want to, to kind of influence it too much, right? So, yeah. so this, is, this is kind of where I'm going. And I said I, I always try to end on two questions, so what and now what? So with the so what, when you look at NRT and especially NRT trading, what's the, what do you think your impact has been in the short to medium term? And what do you think the potential is? You know, uh, the, in the short to medium term, one thing that we have achieved uh, is that we're changing the mindsets on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we want to get the people from a place where um, – you know, they. We want them to to get them to a place where they feel empowered to mm. decide their own destiny and this, uh, you know, go for it, uh, and then equip them equip them with the skills that they want. Um, so, so the first part is changing the mindset, and the, uh, you know, where to is kind of to make this vision of. Uh, empowered people that have, um, you know, full control of the destiny come to life. Wow. And, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's not going to be easy. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I'm lucky enough to have a chance to work on it. <laughs> well, I, I, that's, <laughs> that is, uh, probably the best attitude that I've heard, um, is, is simply that the value is having the chance to work on it. Yes. Um, and, and that, you know, and honestly, if I were advising you, I would say that is probably the clearest indication I can get of your intentions. That if you're, if you're valuing the, that however long it takes you that you do it the right way, to me, that's probably the most valuable thing that you can do. So I, I want to thank you for opening the door um, to a part of the world that a lot of my listeners aren't exposed to. Africa is so massive. You can fit every other continent practically inside it. Absolutely. And inside Kenya, there are so many different tribes and cultures and and subtleties that that understanding that takes several lifetimes. Yes. So so just cracking open the door a little bit and allowing us to see a part of Kenya that people wouldn't normally get, even if they looked it up, is fascinating to me. And um, and so I want to have you back to talk um, maybe a, a little bit more about some of the deeper issues. Um, but I also want to say if there's anything I can do um, to help you on the communication side, um, we can take that offline. Hey, yeah, um, I'll definitely take you up, up on that. Perfect. 
So that's all the time we have uh, for Vishal. If you have any other questions, please do send them in to us. Um, I'm happy to to uh, answer what I can and send them along to Vishal as well. Um, but until next time, thank you so much for, for tuning in. And I want to thank you, Vishal, for what was uh, one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. Thank you. 